Shall we pray? Would you just join with me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you that we can come to you with assurance that you are present here with us, that uh, we don't have to strive to enter in because you've made a way through the cross, through the blood of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You've given us an access to the Holy of Holies. Uh, you've not only made it possible, but you, have, you beckon us. You call us into your presence, Lord. So we come into your presence, Lord. We acknowledge your presence here. And I just pray that you would honor uh, Lord, that, that your, this Word would honor You and that, that You would uh, honor us, Lord, by opening up our hearts and minds to receive what You have for us from Your Word today. In Jesus' name, Amen. Alright. Well, um, I'm starting just a short two-week series on emotional freedom this Sunday. And, um, you know, there's so much involved in uh, the area of healing and restoration, which is one of our core values. It's the R of the FIRE acronym, if you're familiar with that. Uh, our uh, four core values, and R stands for restoration of our heart and soul, uh, and our, our minds uh, through healing. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. <clears throat> there is a, a lot that is involved in healing and restoration. We're going to zero in on one particular dynamic uh, but this particular dynamic is one of the primary roots of dysfunction in uh, in our lives, <clears throat> and uh, it's interesting. <laughs> yeah, this may be interesting. It may not. I don't know. <laughs> I found it. As, I've done a lot of preparation. I've been citing this thing uh, for a, a long time. But there's two. Uh, there was a teaching series that I listened to that uh, where I first learned about this dynamic that we're going to talk about this morning, and and the author of it, and the one who who started it, uh, who wrote the book, was actually a, a rocket scientist. And he, he kind of jokes. He says it actually does take a rocket scientist to to figure this out. He literally worked for NASA for over 20 years, and and now he he teaches this ministry of emotional healing. And then last yesterday I was. Uh, uh, just going through my regular list of podcasts that I listen to, and I, I, I listen to the Toronto Churches, which is the head of our association. And just like two weeks ago, they had someone uh, speak, and he taught on the exact same topic. So I was really encouraged. And he's an MD who specializes in mental health issues and has for his whole career. And uh, and he now his name is Grant Mullen, but he teaches on the he he taught just two weeks ago on. Uh, on this particular issue, and so that always encourages me, and maybe encourage you that that this is something that God wants to deal with. Um, and um, I've found that this issue is is almost always at the core of dysfunction or emotional difficulties in people's lives. No matter what manifests, what issue is manifesting, a particular problem that you might be having, the underlying cause is is almost always, probably 90 to 95 percent of the time, uh, based in this, or this has a part of it. So it's, it's a really uh, important part, and it's called the shame 
fear, control, stronghold. Okay, shame, fear, control, stronghold. So we're going to talk about shame today. And the next week we're going to talk a little bit about how control and fear works uh, together with that. And then on the Saturday following, we're going to have a workshop because we really don't have the time, and this is not the best setting, to get into ministry to give freedom from shame, fear, and control. So this Sunday and next Sunday, <coughs> I'm going to just kind of give some information about it and uh, kind of deal with it later. Or you can get the information, take it home, deal with it yourself. So, so in order to introduce the idea of shame, I thought, thought we'd just have everyone share their most, most embarrassing moment <laughs> in front of the stage on video. <laughs> the extroverts are like, yes, finally! <laughs> Now I'm going to tell you my, one of my most embarrassing moments, and maybe you've heard this story before because I like talking about it. <laughs> you know you're an extrovert when you like talking about your most embarrassing moment. So this was years ago when Kathy and I were just first married, and I worked in this old store, it's called Montgomery Ward. <laughs> you know you're old if you remember Monkey Wards. <laughs> yeah, I sold VCRs, can you believe it? They were new at the time. <laughs> uh, all right. So, and there was a little, um, a little diner inside the inside the, the department store, and it was called the buffeteria. The short, you know, combination. They thought they were cute. Buffet, cafeteria, buffeteria. <laughs> it, it never really caught on. <laughs> but all the people who worked there, because we ate most of our meals there, and we didn't call it the buffeteria. We call it the buff. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, hey, I'm gonna grab a sandwich in the buff. You know, so we go to grab a sandwich. <laughs> you know, I've been working there for years. That's what we call it. I actually didn't know there was another meaning to that phrase. And uh, Kathy and I, uh, she came out, newlyweds, you know, let's go out to eat a nice restaurant. And so we, we went out to Mr. Steak, which is now Finley's, Finley's right? So it's a nice steak restaurant for lunch. And uh, I want to walk in there. <clears throat> And a really nice restaurant, and the, the hostess, uh, I had just seen her in the Montgomery Ward. I thought, what an odd thing. Someone that works at this really good restaurant would eat their lunch at the buffeteria. I said, wow, didn't I just see you in the bus? <laughs> of course, and she's like, And I went, no, I'm certain of it. It was just like an hour ago. And there's other people. I'm, like, I'm, just, I'm just shocked. I, just, I saw you in the buff. In my... <laughs> and like, she is like three shades of red. And then it hit me in the buff. <laughs> and I just, I'm just starting to explain myself. And they just seated us and ignored us the rest of the night. Of the day. <laughs> so there you go. <clears throat> First Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Speaking of shame. I felt bad about that for a long time. Uh, I didn't go to that restaurant again for years. <laughs> so I was sure she didn't work there anymore. Coming to Him, First uh, Peter 2, 4-6. Coming to Him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, 
but chosen by God and precious, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. So there's a promise here. He who believes on him, Jesus, will be will by no means be put to shame. That's a promise we can cling to, right? How many want that promise? You will by no means be put to shame. How many want that promise? It's a promise in Scripture. No way you're going to get shamed. Literal translation of the Bible, one literal translation puts it this way. And the one believing in Him shall not be ashamed, never, with an exclamation point. The one who believes in Him will not be ashamed. Or Clark puts it this way. It says, By no means be put to shame he who comes to God through Christ for salvation shall never be confounded. He need not haste to flee away. I like it this, this part. For no em- enemy shall ever be able to annoy him. How many are tired of being annoyed yeah. by the enemy? Yeah. Alright? And that's what shame is. It's just an annoyance. And, uh, and, and the Scripture is saying that we're not going to be put to shame. We don't have to fear being annoyed by the enemy. That's what the promise means. But there's another promise in this Scripture <laughs> that you may not like to cling to. One of the promises of Scripture that you kind of read over. And it starts out with it. It says, Coming to Him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men. Alright? So just as Christ was rejected, guess what? We also can suffer rejection. And rejection and shame are really the same thing. Alright? We become shamed when we're rejected and rejection causes shame and shame causes rejection. It's kind of... uh, uh, same effect. And so in this very promise that we will not have shame is the dynamic that we will experience rejection from men. Jesus said it this way in John 15, verse 18. He says, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. (laughs) You think somebody hates you? Don't be, you know, don't worry about it. Hated me first. Jesus said, I'm leading the way. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And so uh, the promise is not that we will never feel or actually be rejected. Okay? It's actually promised that we will experience rejection, but and rejection by others. But regardless of whatever we experience from others, we can have a firm foundation that we're chosen, okay, by God. And that's that's in both verses. In in, in Peter, it says that uh, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. All right, we're, we're living stones chosen by God. And in, in John, Jesus says, uh, "You are not of the world, but I chose you." So both God the Father and Jesus has chosen you. All right, He hasn't rejected you. 
Say, God has not rejected me. Okay? When people reject you or when you feel rejected by others, that's not God. But even when that happens, and it really does happen, and sometimes it just seems like it happens, underlying that, undergirding it, is the acceptance. The way you deal with that perceived or real rejection is having an understanding, a real uh, experiential knowledge that you're accepted by by the Father and you're you're actually chosen, you're selected. All right, and so it can become a badge of honor instead of something that causes shame and causes you to withdraw. Um, it says you are living stones being built up, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. All right, uh, that's the verse in in, in Peter. And it says, coming to Him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. So we're chosen and we're precious, we're valuable, yet in the same time we can experience rejection from others. And <clears throat> this whole idea of being built up into a spiritual house is a process. Okay? It takes time. And what happens is, each of us as individual living stones with our rejection issues well intact. All right, are taken out of whatever lifestyle we've, whatever childhood that we've grown up in, or experiences that we've experienced through life, and then God chooses us, and we come into relationship with Him, and He selects us, and He places us together with other people that have been, that have grown up in households where they've experienced rejection and all kinds of stuff, and when we're we're joined together, <laughs> fitly knit together to build up this house. And so most often our rejection issues and our shame issues show up all right, when, in the process of being fit together into a spiritual house. That's what I'm talking about is that church. Okay, if I'm not being clear enough. All right. <clears throat> it's that church. Why is it that church? Because it's, that's God's process. In fact, it's, it's such a difficult process that a whole bunch of people are like just saying, we don't need church anymore. <laughs> what they're really saying is, we're so sick and tired of feeling this rejection and dealing with our problems and other people's problems, we're just going to stay home. Thank you very much. You know? But God's saying, no, you're going to be fit together because you're going to live together eternally. This is God's process. And they want to hang out at home for a while. It's okay. But God's purpose is to take us broken, misformed, disfigured though we may be, and build us into a beautiful house, which is His house. Living stones knit together. So our rejection issues affect our new relationships in the uh, in the kingdom of God. Um, and it's often worked out. Another part of this verse in, in Peter is that we're put together for a purpose. Alright? What's the purpose? To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You know, what happens when you sacrifice something? What's the first thing that happens to the sacrifice? It dies. So something's got to die. 
Alright? And God wants that, that re- those rejection issues, those shame issues, the things that were part of your old life to die. And it's yielded. And the second dynamic of, of, of sacrifice is that you give God something and you get something in exchange. And so you're giving up something in order to receive something. And this is applicable on many different levels, but we're going to apply this today in this uh, series about getting rid of our shame and rejection issues and accepting that we are chosen and accepted and precious. Okay, We're selected, picked out by God Himself, and we're valuable to Him. We're not unvaluable or, or worthless. We're actually worth the price that He paid for us. And what was the price He paid? Jesus Christ. How much are you worth? You're worth the blood of Jesus Christ. So how valuable are you? Stinking valuable, right? So when, when you have the thought that you're not valuable or that you're worthless, is that true? It's a lie! But it, it, it's a, so ingrained into us that it, uh, it dominates our lives and it affects our relationships, sometimes to the point that we don't even know it. Uh, and our relationships, our lifestyle, how we think, how we relate to ourselves is even corrupted because of this underlying issue of shame that comes out of rejection. All right. Replace the shame, replace the rejection, and uh, receive the acceptance of God. So what we're going to talk about is the shame-fear-control stronghold. And we have a diagram that illustrates that. (laughs) There you go! This is what the (coughs) NASA scientist came up with. (laughs) Um, We're going to talk about this, work through it a little bit over this week and next week and then on the Saturday workshop. Mainly going to talk about shame and the definition of shame. You can just leave the diagram up for a while. Uh, um, The definition of shame is a sense of being uniquely and hopelessly flawed. It leaves a person feeling different and less valuable than other human beings. Shame is self-oriented. There's something wrong with me. Self-oriented. Now, we can experience genuine shame if you do something shameful. But a better word for that is guilt. And guilt is something that is okay. It's it's very good to feel guilty when you do something wrong so that you can repent, be forgiven, and be set free. Uh, guilt is knowing that we have done something wrong. It tells us we've made a mistake. Guilt is action-oriented. Okay, What I did was wrong. Shame is, is uh, self-oriented. I am wrong. Huge difference. Okay? Uh, you know, it's the difference between someone saying, you lost the game, or you lost the point, versus you're a loser. And it's okay to say I lost. Acknowledged I did something wrong so that I can improve because ultimately I'm a winner. But once you believe I'm a loser, then it affects your identity. And the issue with shame is it gets to our identity. It's rather than saying I made a mistake, I made a mistake, or you made a mistake, it's you are a mistake. You're a mistake. Oh. And when 
someone hears that repeatedly or in a traumatic way, it goes down. Rather than saying, you know, you do something wrong, I do this frequently. <laughs> I'll do something and go, that was really stupid. Or, that was really dumb. And I can do really dumb things. But I never say, I'm dumb. Or, I'm so stupid. Because I know I'm not. You know, ultimately I'll figure it out. The fact I realize it's dumb tells me I'm smart. Okay? <laughs> so, but I can do dumb things and not affect, it's not affect my identity. It's when you take it as I'm a loser, I'm a mistake, or I'm stupid. Then it, 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 it twists your, your heart understanding of yourself. Uh, the Kilstras who wrote the book on this, you know, kind of a lengthy quote from them. Shame, as differentiated from guilt, is that awful sense of being uniquely and hopelessly flawed. Like rejection, it is a common malady for many of us as we have accepted the lie that this is who I am, that our core personhood is one of shame. This is the work of an ungodly belief, a false belief about our identity. We attempt to cope with the unthinkable thought that we are uniquely and hopelessly flawed as we struggle with how to survive among others that might reject us. We unintentionally give place to fear. That's what leads to fear. We allow it to intertwine um, with shame amplifying our human fear. What if they find out? And then we will be really in trouble. And this opens the door for control, giving it place with shame and fear with its deceptive promise of protection and cover-up. So control comes in when you try to hide your shame issue, whatever it is that causes you shame that you're afraid other people will find out so that no one will ever find out how difficult or how bad we really are. Or even God will, won't find out. We try to hide it. Even though control is unable to deliver on its promise of protection, we still experience life's shaming events. So control, you can't control everything. And so you're still going to experience things that uh, produce shame. And we continue on year after year, yielding to and cooperating with the th- these three demonic strongholds. We're going to talk a little bit over next, over next week in the workshop how this is related to demonic strategies to tear you down and, and to box you up. Since we don't know any other alternative, we think that these manifestations are just part of our personality. You begin to believe, and I've heard this countless times, uh, the, the MD that was talking about it, I was listening to it, he said, you're all here, you're, you're, you're either one of two classes, you're either one or the other, there's no exception. You're either in recovery, <laughs> alright, and that you've realized your issues and you're recovering from that, and the, and the whole of Christian life is about recovering from your issues, or, you know what the other, other you're in denial. Because <laughs> right? we all were born into a fallen world. And we're either recovering from this stuff or we're in denial of this stuff. Uh, it's, and what happens is we think that these manifestations are part of our personality. And I hear this, I hear it from myself. I'll say things that people think it's their personality. It's not their personality. It's shame. Uh, and it's fear. And it's control. And it's hiding their true personality back behind 
And then they go on. They say, talk about the perfect trap. The final catch-22 is this. Since we would be ashamed if we admitted that we were uniquely and hopelessly flawed, we draw back from meeting God's requirement to confess our sin. The very thing that we are working or controlling day and night to prevent, the exposure of our shame, right? you don't want to confess sin because it, causes, it, it reveals shame and you're so trying to hide shame. And God says you need to confess your sin and that's what, where you'll get freedom. But you can't confess your sin because then everybody will find out. And actually what happens is you'll have to actually admit to yourself because usually by this stage in life, you're already convinced it's just who you are. All right? uh-huh. and, and you haven't even, you get to the point where you, you think it's who you are. And it's not who you are. God made you precious. All right? He sees you as precious, as unique, as chosen, as valuable. Uh, and the things that you do may be shameful or the things you do may be worthy of guilt, but you as an individual are worthy and made perfect. And He wants to draw that true nature out. Alright? So, uh, you get in this trap that you can't confess your sin because then that would reveal and that's the thing you're most afraid of. What are the roots of shame? Um, first of all, you turn to Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, if you want to find this in Scripture. I'm going to do that. I didn't quote that in my notes. Um, it really started way back in the garden. Um, and so it's primal. Alright? Whatever happened in the garden is really primal. It goes to the very core of who uh, we are as human beings. And it, and it existed in the initial... Uh, uh, initial occurrence of sin and, and rebellion against God. And in verse 7, it says, uh, Then the eyes of both of them, of course they had sinned, and the eyes of both of them uh, were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covering. And Paul quotes this you know, about concerning marriage in the New Testament. It says they were naked and they had no shame. All right, before. Uh, but then they had sinned and then they, they were aware of their nakedness and so they covered themselves. And so there's an aspect that they experienced shame as a result of sin. And they felt like they had to hide. All right? They had to cover up and they hid, literally, they hid from God. And in verse 3.10, you see the fear dynamic. God came and was walking through the garden. Where are you? And Adam said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So here you have shame and fear as the initial result of sin in your life, especially in your interaction with God. Shame and fear, right there at the beginning. Um, and then uh, 12 and 13, uh, the, the final step is the whole issue of control because when God started to talk to him about it, the man instantly said, the woman you gave me, <clears throat> by the way, she, she, she made me do it. All right. So he's casting blame and, and God looks to the woman. The woman said, well, that, that, that serpent, he deceived me and he made me do it. And so shifting of blame, trying to control the outcome of the situation and deflect from yourself to somebody else, that's control. 
Alright? It wasn't me, it was that woman. It wasn't, it wasn't me, it was that serpent. And of course, God speaks to the whole issue. But right from in the garden, we see this as the initial uh, reaction to sin. And, and it's the same today. We have these same reactions in our own life. It also happens early in life. Okay? I'm just going to whip through a couple of, uh, not a couple, a whole list of different characteristics and dynamics that happen that, that induce shame in a person's life. And we've all experienced some of this, some more than others, some are more aware of it than others. But um, traumatic, shameful events often in childhood and then reinforced throughout your life. So if something happened in your childhood, even, uh, even in the womb, they've found that this can, this can affect someone for their whole life. And sometimes identifying what that initial shameful experience is is the core to breaking the cycle. Um, and often we have to, we'll find, God will reveal one shameful experience from our past and we'll work through repentance from that and acceptance of it and, and see how Jesus was at work in that. And then He'll get to something that happened earlier. And it's kind of like an onion. It gets deeper and deeper so it gets further into our core level. But it's a traumatic, shameful event or living in a continual state of shame. It may not be a single event, boom, trauma, but it could be a continual lifestyle or atmosphere of shame. You know, with, with me, probably the biggest event in my childhood was when my parents divorced because it was so out of the box. Uh, we were church-going people. Divorce was wrong. I was taught divorce was wrong. And then just kind of out of the blue. I didn't know it wasn't out of the blue. My parents had been struggling for years. But it was hidden from me. I didn't see it. I was just a kid. And then it was like, bam, they get divorced. And uh, and there's a two or three year period of my life I still can't remember. Just blanked it out. you know. And God's healed me a lot of that. But uh, all of a sudden, everything fell apart. And so that at its root has been an issue that I've dealt with and have learned how to deal with. And not deny it, but realize, wow, what, what in me today is really coming out of a reaction from that event? Or uh, someone who grows up in a, in a shameful environment, maybe uh, uh, you're poorer than other people that you uh, in your town or go to school with, so they always they, you feel ashamed when you go to school because you wear clothes from Kmart or something and everybody else wears coal. Clothes from the expensive shopping store. I don't even know what they're called. <laughs> All right, and it becomes our identity. Um, uh, uh, another example I'll share with you that was powerful, and I didn't realize this until many, many years ago. Was uh, when I was a child, my my best friend, who was the only neighbor that I had because I lived out in the country, <laughs> literally the only other kid in a five mile radius. Um, so he was my best friend. <laughs> but he moved away, okay, and I was really uh, upset about that. My my brothers and my parents, in trying to help me deal with this, I realize this now. They were like. You know, saying that's ah, a good thing to move away. You know, it's, you know, it's, they were trying to make me think that it's a good thing. You know, uh, rather than just letting me grieve, they were like, oh, you know, they're always this and always that, and they were kind of different kind of people. But I really liked him, and um, I remember one point in which I was like, I actually said something mean to him because that was how I dealt with grieving. I started being mean to him. All right. And, and so that helped me uh, when he moved away. That I was—it's good that he's gone, you know. But it wasn't good. 
<laughs> and uh, and what I adapted is this idea that I'm not a good friend. All right, it was put in front of me like I had to choose. I had to choose to be sad about him leaving or be happy with my family. That's what it felt like as a child. Uh, as a child, I didn't understand that, but God revealed that to me. It was choose your friend or your family, and I chose my family by golly. By rejecting my friend, well, I didn't have to reject him. And if my parents were, you know, smarter in these kind of things, they could have helped me through it. Well, they didn't. They did the best they could. But that planted a seed in me that I'm not a good friend. That up until I was in my mid-30s, early 30s, I never realized I believed that about me. But it controlled how I related to other people. Okay, I, I knew that I wasn't a good friend, and so I only let people in so far, or only I believe. And, and the facts are, I'm probably the best friend you'll ever have. Okay, I'm serious. Okay, a friend from college still calls me once or twice a month. Uh, you know, I'm always there. I I don't go away. <laughs> you can leave. It's okay. I'll still be here. <laughs> you know, but I had to repent of that. And it changed my identity of who I am. All right. Or another person, an example would be if, if, a, if a woman is, is raped, okay, or sexually abused, they take on a, the identity is that's not just something bad that happened to me. They take on the identity that I'm the raped one. Okay. And so, wow. And they always see themselves that way. Like they're stained, they're hopelessly flawed, you know, and that's just not true. Uh, that was something bad that happened that God can heal you from, but that doesn't change the fact that you're unique and chosen and valuable to Him and precious. All right. Common sources of, of shame is uh, rejection, especially as an infant or a childhood or during the teenage years, coming of ages. Those times of life is when these things really get formed. It's being the scapegoat if you're always blamed when you're a kid, if you're always the one that everybody blames you for something that goes wrong. If anything's wrong, you're like the easy one to pick on. Or even if you perceive it that way, then that becomes your identity. If you're the one at school that's always left out, you become, you take on that as an identity. I'm always left out. All, I'm not one of the popular kids. So it's not, I'm just, those three kids don't like me. It's that I'm unlikable. And there's a huge difference. Okay? And when you start to believe that you're unlikable, that affects how you treat everyone. And you re- reinforce that. Physical abuse, especially if it involves your face. You know, if your parents slapped you in the face, all right, that's a shaming act. Right? It's almost impossible for that to happen without ha- doing emotional wounding. And, uh, and so you can be physically abused, but what is even more, more uh, damaging is when it is received emotionally. Because you'll recuperate from that bruise, but that bruise in your heart will last your lifetime until Jesus comes and brings healing to that. Um, neglect. If you're, if you're neglected by those who are supposed to care for you, that it automatically communicates, I, I am not worth. There's something wrong with me. And so that neglect causes you to believe, why are they not taking care of me? The way, Even if you don't understand the dynamics, you know that there's an unmet need. And you're crying out. And the assumption is that there's something wrong with me. 
Improper discipline by uh, parents that induce shame. Listen, we're, if, you're, if your parents try to train you like they train a dog, all right? If you train your children like an animal instead of a rational being that has a mature spirit, you are, it induces shame. And parents do this all the time. It's better than what it used to be, but there's a, the parent, we don't understand this. We think that, you know, that they should just obey because they're smaller than us, you know. When they're rational beings, and you have to teach them, there's a point where they need to obey, but even that has to be built on a relationship of trust, you know, and not this arbitrary, if you step over the line, I'm going to smack you, you know. Step over the line, there's consequences, but there's no reason for the line. That is not discipline. That's destructive. That's emotionally destructive. Okay? I tell my kids when they're little, if I yell stop, stop. Even if you don't understand because I see something you don't see. Trust me. It's built on trust. Treat your children with respect. But when we're children, we're not treated with respect. We believe the lie that we're not worthy of respect. And that gets down to our value level. It becomes our identity. Uh, shame by association. In other words, some alcoholic uh, parents, you're ashamed just because you're related to the alcoholic and everybody in town knows it. Everybody in your family knows it. Or, you know, some dynamic of, of you're associated. Maybe you had a brother that was uh, a real disobedient bad kid in school and you're the next one coming up through school you know and so everyone expects you to be you're ashamed just because you're part of that family or you're ashamed because you're 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 part of a particular social economic group sexual abuse of any kind even if it's really minor uh, because it's uh, our identity is so intimately tied to our sexuality and so if we have any kind of sexual impropriety um, it can cause uh, shame in the inner core Um, exposure to pornography as children almost uh, uh, will almost automatically cause a shame base to, to develop. That's why you should never have any pornography in your house. It's one of the many, many reasons. Because it just causes shame. Um, and it, re, it reinforces. I've got, I've got to get through this list. Physical deficiencies. If, you, if you're too big, of course, we're all, we're all too big or too small. We're all too short or too tall. You know, <laughs> you know because you're always comparing yourself to somebody else. But any uh, uh, physical deficiency uh, just reinforces this uh, uh, identity of shame, Failed dreams or visions. If your career doesn't progress the way you think it should, you get uh, you get uh, into a place where I, I'm a loser. I, I'm not able to succeed. I want to go through a couple of uh, coping mechanisms. These are lifestyle behaviors. Uh, we'll close. There's five of them. I'll try to go through these quickly. Um, that uh, okay. We're not going to go through these quickly. I'm going to take time to talk through these uh, next week. Unfortunately, this is kind of like what we were leading up to. But I'm out of time and and I don't want to rush through these. Because these are behavior patterns that identify ourselves as having shame in our heart. I think I've I've given enough uh, basic ideas of of where shame comes from and all these different things that I've listed. And um, um, I'm going to let... Bill come up and close. He's going to lead us in a prayer just to kind of close that out. And we'll, we'll delve into this more next week. Bill, would you come up? Mm-hmm.
That was really good.